0: In the peace is the ultimate source of happiness because your view is insane. Many
1: paths to what you call God. Atheism itself is a kind of fantasy world. And the God of the universe wants to live in you. God. 1,000
0: people have been confirmed dead.
1: Let's stop the killing and choose peace. Blow them all away in the name of the Lord.
0: That was the only form of Christianity I knew existed, and I knew I didn't like it.
2: You guys have asked the questions, and we've got some people with the answers. So please help me in welcoming our resident experts, Paul Eddy and Greg Boyd, to the stage.
1: I don't know about that experts thing and i don't know that we have all the answers but uh we we, we look good at least so uh, we're handsome and, and well i do at least but uh we'll do our best we'll do our best
2: i was referring to Here's paul it. anyway so there we go
1: <laughs> it's good it's all good you know uh, jesus taught us to love the lord our god uh, with all our heart all our soul all our body and all of our mind he included that and the mind is there to think Right, that's what the mind's supposed to do, and so we think it is uh, an act of worship to think, to intently think about kingdom and and all sorts of other things. So uh, we have a, a community here, a family here that believes in, in the appropriateness and even the godliness of thinking, and that's about asking questions. Uh, I don't know what your background is, but my first exposure to uh, Christianity was in a context where uh, you never question the pastor, uh, and if you ask any questions, it's it's always in the form of "I know you're right." Uh, can you show me how much more right you are? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we don't have that mindset here because that's, that's turning the brain off. And so I, I really love these Q&A times. Uh, at the end of our uh, series, we more often than not will have a time where we just invite questions. And, so, and I love the t- spontaneity of it. You never know what's going to happen, the curveballs and stuff. So trying to stump us here. It's like playing verbal chess. So anyways, <laughs> let's, let's head at it.
2: How does the Hebrews 11 definition of faith line up with Greg's understanding of faith, which seems to say that we can doubt and have faith at the same time?
1: All right. Yeah, Greg, how does that line up? Well, first of all, you'll want to get the book, Benefit of the Doubt, because I have a whole chapter on this. But uh, the short answer is this, uh, you know, that uh, in Hebrews 11:1, it says that faith is the substance of things uh, hoped for and the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. Uh, And the way I... Well, at least one application of that, I I think, is this. uh, That uh, um, faith is about holding as a substance. The word there is hypostasis. uh, Holding as a substantial reality, that which you anticipate, or something that you believe is God's will. You you envision it. It's a vision. And then that vision creates a conviction. And the word there is uh, elenkos, A conviction that it will be so, which motivates you to move in a certain direction. Um... A real unfortunate translation is, and I've, I've seen uh, two translations that do this, uh, where it says that faith is the certainty of things hoped for. And that, that's just a very bad translation of uh, elenkos It's just, uh, because, see, this kind of faith, having a vision that moves you in a certain direction, is totally comp- compatible with being uncertain. And that's in contrast to the kind of faith that a lot of people have today, where they think that your faith is strong to the degree that you're certain of something. So they try to talk themselves into certainty. And that leads to all sorts of bizarre conclusions. And if you look at Hebrews 11 as it unfolds, all those folks illustrate that kind of faith. They, they, uh, the author says that they, they, they uh, had a, a vision that they were moving towards um, that what uh, was yet unseen. In fact, all the heroes in, of, of faith in Hebrews 11, they end up dying before they get what was promised to them. They just moved in that direction. And so it really illustrates that faith is a movement towards something you don't. You can't be certain that person is going to be healed because you're praying for it, uh, unless God gives you a supernatural word of knowledge or something. We just have to accept that most of life is uncertain. But faith is about willing to move in in a direction in the face of uncertainty. Not bad. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Professor. Would you give me a B? A? minus? A-? Please. Okay. All right. <laughs> All
2: right. Moving on. As we seem to be rather in the minority of Christians with the very loving picture of God, are there any denominations of Islam that view God as love?
1: You teach world religions.
0: I, yes, you and I both uh, taught world religions. Um, interesting question. So are there any denominations um, of Islam that, that see God as love? Um, I guess before, if anyone would ask me any question about any religion that saw God as love, I would want to start with a caveat and say... I think both of us could say this, having taught world religions, neither Greg or I have ever seen a world religion that has claimed about their view of God what Jesus demonstrates to be true about about the God of Jesus Christ. Namely, not that just God is loving or that God does some loving things towards us, but rather that God actually is love. That is qualitatively different from any other religious tradition I've ever heard of on the planet in the history of (laughs) religiousness. but uh but that doesn't mean that a number of religions don't have some view of god as in some sense loving and such so when you think of islam uh yes uh that that would be the case with with some groups of uh, you think of the sufi movement for example this was a movement a part of islam that arose in the middle ages Uh, they're predominantly known for sort of it's a mystical dimension of islam um, the very swirling dervishes. The whirling dervishes, yeah, whirling dervishes uh, is swirling, where that phrase whirling, comes swirling. from. Yes. Yeah,
1: they dress the, up in white and they
0: swirl. Whirl.
1: whirl, swirl or whirl. They turn around. They curl.
0: Okay, <laughs> they, they hurl. <laughs> anyway, uh, in in this version of Islam, the, the fundamental goal is to almost become merged with or united with allah and allah for these this this group of of sufis is seen as very loving very uh, what they'll do is they'll look at the first surah uh we'd call it a chapter uh surah in, in the quran the first very first opening uh section of text in the quran says opening words uh that allah is compassionate and merciful and so they would see that as their predominant uh, element of, of who Yahweh is, or who uh, Allah is. Now, beyond the, the, the Sufis, there are other broader groups who would simply say, "Yes, Allah is loving." Again, it says in the, in the Quran that He is merciful and compassionate. Um, some some uh, uh, Muslims would claim to be pacifist because they believe that uh, that Allah is is merciful and compassionate. Um, Others wouldn't, and so just like in Christianity, so in Islam and every world you're going to find diversity of beliefs. The Baha'i is another group who is related to but not identical. Well, the they
1: consider themselves Muslims, but Muslims don't consider them Muslims. But we have that kind of stuff going on in Christianity as well. Yeah. But they're, they're total pacifists. Yeah, they're uh, sworn to nonviolence.
2: So this question um, is in regards to um, this talk that Seth gave, and it says that they have a friend who is seriously questioning his Christian faith after reading some of Richard Dawkins' books. I really want to have some help for conversations with them, but I'm not sure where to start. Seth talked about a few reasons that he believes in God despite the arguments of the new atheism. What do you guys see as some of the strongest reasons or logical arguments for belief in God? Hmm.
1: You've debated well,
0: on this topic, haven't you? A little bit, a little here
1: bit. and there. Um, my, my shortest uh, argument that I, that I think has... It's not the only argument I've used, but it's one that I can, I think, express most quickly, and it, I think it's very compelling. It's the one that got me to start to reconsider uh, Christianity after I'd lost my faith uh, as a freshman in, in, uh, um, at the University of Minnesota. But it, it basically comes down to this. Um, I was wondering why it is that it's so uh, painful to be an atheist. Like, and and it it's, it's struck me as odd. If, if, in fact, there is no God, how could the universe involve, evolve a being that seems so out of place if there is no God? And more specifically, what I began to wonder is this. How is it that I, I, my brain wants to make sense out of the world, compulsively? I want to make sense of things. But if there is no overarching mind, who, why, why would anyone think it, it does make sense? If there's no overarching mind, which is what is to believe in a rational God, then um, uh, things, we shouldn't expect things to make sense. But not only do, do we, we think things should make sense, it turns out, and this is what science is all about, it, 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 it does make sense. There's a rational-like quality to the world. Einstein called this the incomprehensible comprehensibility of the world. Um, that it has a mathematical structure that you can predict what's going to be out in the world based on, on what, what you do on a blackboard. Uh, like you did with, with the theory of re- re- relativity. So, I long, for, I long for reason, I long for things to make sense, uh, and that would seem to suggest that, that there must be something out there that makes sense. And that, I, I long for, for morality, I, I, for good to overcome evil. Um, but but if, if there is no overarching moral being to this thing, if the, if the whole universe is simply sort of, you know, a chance combustion of molecules floating in, in nothingness, well then there is no good and there is no evil, not ultimately, and, um, and in the end, good doesn't overcome anything. Uh, in, in the end, everything dies a heat death. So it doesn't matter whether you're Adolf Hitler or a Mother Teresa. Uh, and so I, I long for good to overcome evil, but there's nothing that answers that in nature. And then finally, uh, I, I think all human beings long for some kind of significance, some kind of purpose, some kind of ultimate meaning to, for something to count. And yet, if there is no purposer, uh, in, in, no intentional being behind this universe... Uh, then there is no ultimate purpose. It just is. It's like, it's like a giant burp, you know? It, it, it has no f- purpose for being there. It's just molecules in motion. And uh, in the end, nothing matters. I remember reading... Uh, well, the second book I read full length uh, when I started to Discover Philosophy was Jean-Paul Sartre's Being in Nothingness. It's about 600 pages long. I understood hardly any of it. But I, one sentence just gripped me. And, and, and it, he said, a finite point without an infinite reference point is essentially meaningless. A finite point that begins and ends, unless it's re- reference to something that is not does not begin and end, it's meaningless. Because before it is, it is not. After it is, it is not. So what difference does it make whether it was? You say, well, uh, we'll have kids. Well, yeah, but they're finite too. And they'll have kids. So we'll leave the world a better place. Yeah, well, it's all going to get sucked into the sun. It's going to turn into a supernova and then into a giant black hole. And so it is with all the suns. So really what difference does it make? There's no ultimate point, no point to anything. So he, I was, here's what I was thinking. is like nature doesn't usually evolve beings that are fundamentally at odds with it. I mean, you know, you, you get thirsty and there's water and, you, and your lungs want air. Guess what? There's air. You get six drives, and there's sex. You know, there's always an answer to stuff. How is it that we have these fundamental longings for reason and for morality and for purpose, and yet there's nothing that corresponds to it out in uh, the, 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 the real world? And as I explained to Seth, it's like, it's like the Sahara Desert. The wind blows around. It somehow spontaneously evolves a carp. And, and, and the carp flops around miserable in the hot sun, longing for water. But there never is such a thing as water Not in the Sahara. Um, and that, that'd be like what we human beings are. We're freaks of nature. We just sort of popped out of existence. We're fundamentally at odds with it. And so it, it seems to me it makes a whole lot more sense to assume that ultimate reality, which is the ultimate state of things, that that is a being who is somewhat like us. If, if there's a God out there with a, with a super example of mind and a, a supreme morality and, and, and intentional, if ultimate reality is like that, well, then I can make sense of why I'm like this. I fit. We're at home in the universe. The Bible says we're made in the image of God. But if that's not the case, well, then we're fundamentally at odds with the universe. And um, I think that's a, a good argument for believing that there is the ultimate cause of things as as a being who is the super example of what we are in a little ways. It's
0: interesting you mentioned Sartre there. Uh, One of the great, well-known atheists of the 20th century. On his deathbed, he was being interviewed by his friend, Simone de Beauvoir, and she was asking him kind of his last thoughts about his philosophy. And in the course of this this, uh, interview, he said, uh, he said, although it doesn't fit with my worldview at all, because I'm an atheist and I don't believe there's ultimate meaning, he said, nonetheless, I still feel as if I was a being who was prefigured, created, called forth. I always remember that phrase. Prefigured, created, called forth. He says, but of course, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense in my worldview. Uh, so I think it, it taps into this thing that despite his worldview, there was something in him uh, that said, but this doesn't make sense of, of, of who I am and what I am. Um, when I was in college, I didn't have a, a, a complete, what I'd call atheistic experience. I grew up in the church, uh, but I did have about six months, and I didn't tell anybody about this, certainly not my my parents or my church or anything but i I went through what i'd I'd call probably an agnostic period about six months i just didn't know if there was a god anymore i was deep into science um and that was kind of my world and it was at that time that i kind of wrestled through like what am i going to believe about about this whole christianity thing and god thing um i ended up coming out on the god side of things largely because of a couple of books i ended up reading from scientists about really the, the the beginning of the universe and i remember one guy robert jastra who was the founder of the nasa goddard space institute he was an agnostic and he said it's strange but what modern science is proposing these days sounds a whole lot like what genesis chapter one says i remember this agnostic guy saying this and i remember thinking if an agnostic scientist who's really respected is saying that sort of thing i I probably need to pay attention to to that question um so I, i think that i think a lot of the stuff that's modern science uh Seventy years ago, we never would have guessed that modern science and the belief in God would have intersected increasingly I think we see that intersection so much so that you know, you mentioned Richard Dawkins Who's sort of the most well-known atheist probably writing today when I was You know a kid uh, One of the more well-known atheists was Anthony Flew kind of like saying Richard Dawkins today. Well, Anthony Flew Became a believer in God in I think it was 2004 Largely he said because of scientific evidence that had mounted in that direction and be like saying Richard Dawkins became you know, a believer in God, uh, sort of like, like Anthony Flew. That's so, I
1: what I think is most interesting is that, and we've known this for about 50 years, Einstein resisted it to the end. Uh, but uh, um, it, it said, everything indicates that this universe is a one-time, unidirectional thing. You okay, the whole Big Bang Theory, it, it, it blew up, and it, it now it's expanding. And now we discovered that the farther out you go, the faster it's expanding, and there's not enough matter in the universe, everyone agrees on this, to ever slow that down, let alone start to retract it. It's a, it's a one-way explosion. Well, that is just weird, if you think about it, that, that there's there was, there was, there was nothing except this super-condensed matter, which no one can ever explain how that got there. But It's just going along, and for eternity... Because if there is something, there must have always been something. Because you can't get something from nothing. So there, there, there must have always been something, and they think, well, it was a thimble of uh, super supercondensed matter, and all of a sudden it explodes. What? what why did it explode then? What changed? It, 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 something had to happen there because it, uh, um, it, it's going on forever. Just fine. And now there's a one-time explosion, a giant, a giant burp. There it is, and uh, and now we're all here. But it's then going to go. It all dissipate into nothingness. I find it to be, that to be profoundly unsatisfying. Well,
0: not only supercondensed matter, but supercondensed matter, space, and time, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's the space and time were also what I mean. So there's not like a, a, an eternal vacuum through which the stuff is traveling. It, it just it boggles the mind,
1: uh, really. But see, I can't conceive of it except they say it's, it's supercondensed uh, space and time because there is no space. Right. And if right. there's no motion, there's no time. Uh but I can't try to conceive of that without conceiving of it. it if you're you know, just stop this we're gonna second. talk about this for like an hour. Right. Okay, okay. This, this is so more. interesting. <laughs> yeah. And then there's those variables so. that the, the cosmic <laughs> constants that, that Seth talked about, those are really good too. Well, well we i have rational I'm
2: more questions, so thanks for coming. No. Um, <laughs> here we go. Without
1: God, there's no <laughs> epistemological uh, sense to give to anything, phenomenologically speaking. Okay.
2: <laughs> Woo! All right. Hey, at what point do doctrinal differences between Christians become mixed signals that are to be avoided in fellowships situations such as teaching, small groups, Bible studies, et cetera? Good question.
0: At what point... Our differences yep. amongst Christians. Mm-hmm. When did they uh, become mixed signals, signals. yeah, uh, to be avoided.
2: Yeah.
0: Something Greg and I have shared in, often in different Q&A sessions, I, I think, um, is this idea that um, all beliefs are not created equal. That uh, it's kind of a simple way to think of, of kind of layers of Christian beliefs in terms of importance, like how important is a particular belief, is to think about a, a series of concentric circles with Jesus at the center and then moving out from jesus what we call dogmas doctrines and opinions um dogmas we could call um well, to use c.s lewis's phrase of one of his most famous books mere christianity the basics uh the pillars of the christian faith would be dogmas so you have jesus then you have the basic christianity then you have doctrines which usually turn out to be theories about dogmas and then you have opinion which really is just theological speculation and what's interesting, at least what I've found, uh, having taught theology for many years now, uh, for example, whenever I teach a theology course at Bethel, within that class, I'm guaranteed, before I even ask the question, that I have at least, at least 10, if not more, denominations in a 40 person classroom at a Christian liberal arts setting. So I know we're going to have a lot of differences of opinion. But it almost always turns out to be the case that where the differences lie are with the doctrine and opinion layers not at the jesus or the the mere christianity central pillar things and so i think if we could remember that 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 there's uh, the farther we go out from essential christianity the more differences of opinion we have the closer we move into getting jesus clear and the basics we have so much common ground Uh, and the sad thing is so many as you mentioned churches and bible studies and denominations have split over differences at the outsides not very Frequently, differences at the center, and I think that's been. Are you
1: pre-trib thing. or mid-trib or post-trib? Exactly. Oh, that's the... or non-trib. Yeah, yeah. The only thing I would say to qualify that somewhat is, is that um, even among people who profess the same mere Christianity, uh, I find one of, the mix, one of the strongest mixed signals I have to interact with is that their picture of God is not defined by Jesus dying on the cross. Uh, Jesus is part of the picture of God, but then they loop in all sorts of stuff in the Old Testament and other things. And so uh, I find that to be, even though we agree doctrinally on stuff, the actual picture of God that people advocate is sometimes very different from the picture that I I would advocate based on the revelation of God. Which really is
0: to say that what we say we believe out of our mouth oftentimes isn't really what's actually the truth about in our you know, in the synopsis of our brain I think that's the, the fundamental question what really do you see or experience or believe in your head when you hear the word Jesus or God not just what do you say but what what's the yeah, factual yeah. reality of what goes on in your brain and does that look as beautiful as as Jesus Christ really is yeah.
2: thank you so what are we to do with the Christian worldview that doesn't see and accept the nonviolent teachings of Jesus Greg talks often about how he has found these teachings to be more and more central to the following and being Christ-like. So, what are we to make of Christian brothers and sisters who don't see this essential part of Jesus' commandments and so don't seem to be fully following him?
1: Mm-hmm. You yeah, judge the heck out of them. That's what I would do. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, look, look, uh, what do you do with it? All I would say is that I i feel uh an obligation to in as loving and humble a way as i can say here's how i see it and here's why um what do you think about that you know jesus says love your enemies do good to those who despitefully use you that you may be children of your father in heaven and I, then i just explained to them when he says enemies they're thinking romans romans are the worst kind of enemies there could be what do you think about that and, and just trying to help people like get their eyes open to it now some are more open to it than others, uh, for sure. And for some, it's just, it's so sensical and so contrary to what they've been taught and the, the fear they have in their life that they, they won't even hear it. And so there, you just bless people. You know, it's like, I, I'm in process, they're in process. You know, so, so you, you call it as you see it, do it as loving way as possible, share it, uh, and, and then be done with it. I don't, have to, I don't know anything about the relation with God or I don't, there's no judgments about their salvation or anything like that. It's just that here's how I see it and um, invite them to join. uh, And they do the same to me with their view. And uh, then bless them and be on your way. Which is really to say, to to do what Mixed Signals was all
0: about, Mm -hmm. right? To to proclaim truth as we see it, as we understand it, in a humble, uh,
1: gentle, loving way and create room for dialogue. I think that's... that's... The very worst thing that you can do, (laughs) someone shared this with me a couple weeks ago, is that they were in a debate with somebody uh, over... uh, whether God is completely as He is in Jesus Christ is he, is, does God love his enemies and is, is he all is a very essence love uh, and and does He call us to love our enemies and refrain from violence and in the course of the argument, this person who 's defending the loving Jesus got very 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 angry and and uh, finger pointing fingers and it 's like and then five minutes into it she realizes i 'm totally contradicting my own view by how i 'm arguing so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, do everything in love. And so as I often say around here, that includes debate and dialogue. And if ever you find that uh, your debating is no longer loving, then then do the kingdom a favor and shut up. (laughs) Because even if you're right, you're wrong. (laughs) Amen.
2: Okay, so people... (laughs) Sorry. People in medieval times believed that God had ordained people's positions in life. Because that was how their society was set up. So how do we know that our view of God being an equal opportunity lover of people isn't just a reflection of today's American culture values of equality and tolerance for all people? Hmm. That's
1: a good question. I, I'll taste that. I, I, I would say two things. One is that um, uh, throughout the Bible, you have God depicted, even in the Old Testament, showing no partiality um, he's, he's a, 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 the Lord of the whole earth and the New Testament becomes particularly clear where he, he, he dies not just for our sins but for the sins of the whole world First uh, John 2, 2 he's not willing that any should perish but wants all to come to repentance and so um, you just have the, the, it, this universally loving God taught all over the place he loves all people created all people and in fact he is love and so it would be contradictory for him not to love people his very essence is love God is love First John 4, 8 now, having said that, I think this question is tapping on something that is is really important because it, it's in the Middle Ages they had the same verses we did, but there was superimposed on that this, this cultural idea that uh, your station in life is is uh, determined by God. It's it's predestined for you, whether you're a nobility, whether you're a peasant, whatever. It was the kind of a caste system, uh, and that was their viewers the Words in our culture, that you know, we have this belief that everybody you know, everybody could be president if they really wanted to, which. Nonsense. But um <laughs> no, we, we and, and this, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Everyone was created equal. Now, here's the thing: is that that I, I think it's true that everyone's created equal in terms of being loved by God. But there's no other sense in which two people are equal. We're all unequal in, in, in all these in talents and all sorts of things. Um, and, and yet, so that's an example of sort of a cultural belief that we just sort of have. Or even more fundamentally, maybe this is what the person's kind of getting at: is that in America, you know, we have this belief that that everyone has a right to uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I've heard people think that that's in the Bible, like the Bible says, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, you see, and it, it'd be very. There's a lot of people who say that is the Christian view. That is at least questionable. Uh, that that I mean, the way it gets played out in our culture is. Uh, that, that um, I have a right to my personal happiness. And uh, um, is, that, is, that, is that really a biblical view? Uh, I have a right to, to, to freedom to the point where I will kill or die for it. Well, you can have that conviction, but is that a biblical... Did Jesus die for his freedom? He died for ours. I, 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 it's really good to question fundamental assumptions in your culture because it's hard for fish to notice the water you swim in. And this is the air we breathe. And uh, uh, it's easy for us to just Christianize things because we're used to them. And that's what cultures have been doing, Christian cultures have been doing throughout history. And so you end up really making an idol of your culture. So it's really good to call into question fundamental assumptions about your culture. It's really biblical. Lord of living in the pursuit of happiness. Hezekiah 3. <laughs> <laughs> American Constitution <one> seven. <laughs>
2: So we've had quite a few um, questions, but all about this topic. So um, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. What does this entail? Should we be praying for them to be convicted by the Holy Spirit? Take ISIS, for example. I pray that our Christian brothers and sisters who are being slaughtered will truly be able to imitate Christ as they face this horrific persecution. And at the same time, I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict these fighters of their wrongdoing when they hopefully see the love of Christ in the people they are killing. Is this appropriate, or are we to only be praying for their forgiveness? Hmm.
0: Good. That's good. I'm, I don't know if maybe they're basing that off of uh, Jesus' words on the cross, Father, forgive them uh, for they don't know what they do. Um, but we certainly don't want to take that one instance of Jesus's prayer as the only type of prayer that Jesus prayed for people, let alone his enemies. I think it's absolutely uh, appropriate to be praying for conviction, to be praying for um, for God's view of reality, which is always the true view of reality, to be you know shown to to us and to others, including our enemies. Um, you know, when one prays. Uh, whether it's praying conviction or opening someone's eyes or such, um, it's not a matter of of coercing them. It's a matter of inviting God's influence into their life to bring His truth and His way of seeing reality, which is always the true reality, into their perspective. Um, I think that's absolutely uh, appropriate.
1: I think it's appropriate to pray for God to protect people from them um, and pray for them to be stopped. I, I wouldn't... I think it's consistent with the character of God revealed in Jesus to pray some of those psalmist prayers about, you know, let their enemies dance in their blood and smash their babies' heads against the rocks. That's, uh, that's not loving and that's not praying good things. Whatever would be good for them, Jesus love them, do good to them, bless them. So whatever is ascribing worth to them. And it would be good for them to get convicted and good for them to have their eyes opened and get freed from this demonic, you know, spirit that, that they've been gripped by. Uh, someone sent me a video yesterday, and I tweeted it. So, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you can get this. Uh, I don't know the address of it, but it, it's it was the most beautiful video uh, about a Christian response uh, to ISIS, and it was it was just beautiful about how the, the person is just proclaiming that we are an army, we're coming after you. And at first, it sounds like ooh, nuclear kind of warfare. In fact, I was really nervous when I started watching. Like, we're an army. Oh, here we go again. But we're an army of uh, a, a people of the cross. And we are, uh, you may kill us, but we're not going to kill you. And, and we will show forth the character of God by how uh, we, uh, the manner in which we die. And uh, our love is going to invade you. And, the, and uh, we pray that God opens up your eyes. We pray that you see that you are loved, uh, that our sin is just as bad as yours. And, and if we can be saved, so can you. And it goes on. And I got, got me, I got me, all these goosebumps. It was just such a beautiful expression of how Christians should. And it ends with those Egyptian uh, uh, Christians just before they're beheaded. But was, the, the, the person taking the video really went up close showing them praying. I had never seen it before. They're all praying just, just before they get put on the ground. And unfortunately, it doesn't show the cutting off the heads. But uh, it it was, it was they, they honored God by the way they died. So do we have one or
2: two more? Why well, it's
1: only 6.04, so we got, we got 11 minutes, man. We can get through 11. The, the, well, okay. we, the, the, the spirit of succinctness is coming out of.: now. <laughs>
2: That's the real question. Okay, so why is the idea that all non-Christians go to hell so widespread in the church if the Bible says there's hope for people of different religions? How can so many pastors and Christians today have the opposite view? Hmm.
1: Well, you know, one thing is, it, it, you know, you have a strong emphasis in the New Testament uh, on, uh, you know, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. And, uh, and the importance on evangelizing and importance on believing in Jesus. So you have that. And it's very easy then to conclude that everybody who's not, uh, if you just focus on those verses, you can come to the conclusion that everybody who's not explicitly a Christian, who doesn't pray that prayer, uh, is going to hell. Um But what I tried to show in my message was that if you zoom out a little bit and look at other considerations, we've got a lot of reasons for thinking that, in fact, God's love encompasses everybody and that the work of Jesus, the saving work of Jesus, encompasses far more people than who knew about it. Uh, Folks in the Old Testament being a case in point. Um, and so I, I think it's just because that's the simpler thing to believe. You have to do a little more mental work to go out and say, well, what about this verse and what about that? What about Acts 17 where Paul says that God's at work in all places and all times trying to get people to seek for him and, and find him, uh, though he's not far from any of us. So as you put all, all that together, you come up with a broader picture. But uh, some folks just like to quote the, those verses. And they assume, when she says, you know, no one goes to the Father except through me, they assume that that means only those who believe in me go to the Father, but those are two very different things. I
0: mean. It's interesting, I and mean, you know I've heard a lot of people say, "Well, you know, Jesus talks far more about hell than he does about heaven," and I've never done the count myself. But I'll even grant that for a minute. An important question, whenever you read Scripture, is the question of context. Like, who is Jesus talking to? When? Right? And I one thing I do get a pretty strong sense of is whether Jesus or Paul or anyone in the New Testament. Usually, when the topic of hell comes up and, and future judgment, it seems that, free, usually, isn't it? Jesus is talking to the people of God at that point. It's, it's the people of God who strayed. He's not going out and talking to people who don't know about God and saying, You're going to hell. He's warning, usually religious leaders, about the hardness of their heart and calling them to repent. But Paul, for example, when you actually have an example of someone going out into the Gentile world, pagans who don't even know God, he doesn't lead with a hell message. He tries to find, as Brianna showed in this series, common ground. And tries to build bridges and, and show them the, the beautiful God they just don't know about. So I think it's we ought to be very much paying attention to context every, every time we... Just, I, just to yank a verse out of the Bible
1: and throw it at people is, is always a danger. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I think there's also, among some, um, a, a sort of religious spirit to this, where you feel special if you're the only ones. It, it, it's, it's like... It, it, I had a Bethel student one time get really mad at this idea that non-Christians could be saved. And her argument was, well then, then why did I quit smoking? <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't the best argument I've ever heard in the world. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, look, at, we're the special people. We, we we give up this stuff, and so only we should get in. And, and it's almost like we don't want God's love to be this generous. We're afraid of this outrageously generous God. Uh, but I, I think the outrageously generous God is, is all the more beautiful. And it's, it's true that Jesus... Uh, most of his parables are about these reversals. Those who are so confident they're in end up being on the out. And those who thought they didn't have a chance end up being on the end. The great reversal parables. Uh, they're meant to warn the, the confidently religious. And so being confident that it only applies to the non-religious is probably not the right conclusion to draw from them.
2: <laughs> Thanks. We want to thank you guys for um, being here and for sending in your questions. We are about to ask our final question of the night. Um, because we want to make sure that you guys can go out and partake in our celebration of the volunteers.
1: Well, we should also mention yourself that, that or oh, maybe you were going to mention it. Maybe,
2: maybe I was. So, why was I? You tell me. I did not to acknowledge
1: knowledge. You were going to mention it, yes. Yeah. Okay.
2: What
1: was I going to mention? Okay. <laughs> uh, that, that, uh, you, you, I, we encourage you to... Um, Watch all of it. Uh, yes, there you go. See, see, <laughs> yep. We are so in sync, yep. yep. uh, Yeah, because uh, we're not repeating the questions uh, uh, from each service. So each service will have a different set of questions. So you want to go and download the whole thing and garner wisdom from the other services yep. as well.
2: Yeah, okay. Thank you. Yep, so final or
1: question. Lack yeah.
2: <laughs> One of my strategies for keeping fear out of my life is to not watch the news or to know too much about what's going on outside my day-to-day circles. Is this a bad idea or a dangerous method of guarding my heart? Hmm. Hmm.
1: Well, okay. I, here's how I would balance it. On the one hand, uh, I'm really glad she wants to guard her heart, or he wants to guard. Is it a, is this gender specified? Uh, No. I I don't. Okay, so I have a friend who's a little bit like this, so that's why I assumed it was a female. But uh, um, she wants to guard her heart. Uh, And you're aware of your limitations. I have a friend who can't see any kind of violence she sees. just does. She can't get the picture out of her mind. It torments her. and and She can't see it on film. She can't see it on the news, whatever. So it's good that you're aware of that. Uh, And it's true that now, because the world has shrunken, because of social media, television, and everything else, we are aware of far more violence around the world than, than people could have been even 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, let alone in the Middle Ages. You know, they had plenty of violence, but they didn't know about it going on in other parts of the world. So it's easy to get over, to deluged with all the horrible stuff out there. So on the one hand, that's good. On the other hand, uh, I would be concerned that your, uh, the way that you manage fear is by blocking reality out. Um, and if that's, that's where you're at, then that's where you're at. But I would encourage you to be growing in a direction where um, you have, you're getting all your security from, from what God thinks about you as revealed in Christ. Now, he, he is your security. Uh, and that then enables you to uh, look at enemies with a sense of love and not fear. And there is no fear in love. To get your love and get your security from God so that now you can love enemies, even if, they're going to, even if the worst-case scenarios are going to happen. Um, I, I like to, in prayer, rehearse worst-case scenarios uh, because I want to have a faith that is, is, uh, is, is able to handle worst-case scenarios because sometimes worst-case scenarios actually happen. And so I encourage you to grow in, in this getting love from God and getting your security God. So even if your life's about to be taken, uh, you, you, you don't have fear. Uh, you, you can have fear looking at the worst terrors in the world. Um, that would be at least the goal. Whether you get there or not, I don't know, but that's the direction to grow in. So you don't have to block out anything in order to assuage your fear.
2: All right, so this is, we're going to start with one that was emailed in this week. And it says, we've talked a lot about non-Christian worldviews, but what about other worldviews within Christianity? Why are there so many different types of Christians, and how should we approach other Christians that we disagree with?
1: Sounds like a
0: Paul question. Good question, good question. Um, Yeah, you know, the the number of Christian sects and denominations and splinter groups is mind-boggling, all emanating from this person, Jesus Christ, um, and i think greg and i would both say when you actually look at what is it that divides the body of christ into all these different groups um you know, you might have probably heard us even use this analogy before we've we've often will talk about these concentric circles that move out from jesus so if you think of sort of christian beliefs as starting at the center with jesus moving from there to what c.s lewis called mere christianity or what we would call the dogmas of the faith kind of the pillars the basic christianity um, from there, doctrines which are usually theories about the dogmas and finally the outer fourth level would be opinions kind of like Theological speculation and as we've looked at the differences that, that really divide Christianity It turns out that from our perspective most of what divides Christians isn't Convictions about Jesus and isn't even convictions about what basic Christianity is. It's the two outer layers of doctrines and opinions and that stuff, which is really the least important stuff, is what's caused the most division and hostility and angst and anger uh, against brothers and sisters over the centuries.
1: So the the dogma would be like the Nicene Creed, uh, Apostles' Creed, you know, that God created the world and uh, humans are fallen and Jesus came to save us and those kind of things. Yeah, basic
0: storyline of scripture, really. You know, a God who is love, the triune God, who sends his son for broken human beings to bring them, restore them back to him who creates the church of Jesus Christ and that he's coming again. Kind of the, the, the real basic storyline of scripture is really the, the dogmas, that the creeds have always sort of anchored for us. We've always agreed on that stuff. Uh, for the most part, it's, it's the other, like, like, okay, what age do you get baptized at? You know, Things like this that begin to do, divide uh, the body in, in, in pretty significant ways, but are, are really on the more outer edges of what is important in
1: Christian. Life. And so in terms of, uh, of interacting with uh, other believers who have differences of opinion, it's, it's the same thing we emphasize throughout this whole series. Um, the most important thing is to do it in love, First Corinthians 16, 14. Whatever you do, do it in love. And that means do it in a way that ascribes worth to the person and uh, affirms them. Um, if at any point you find that you're more interested in winning the, the debate than in expressing love to the person, do the kingdom a favor and shut up. Uh, walk away because you're going to lose even if you win. Um, okay. and, and, uh, and then you just discuss things calmly with an open mind, uh, sharing your convictions and listening to theirs, uh, and proceed from there. Do it love. Our,
0: our conviction is if, if you can agree enough to do the kingdom together, that's enough to do the kingdom together. And... Uh, Let's, let's not divide needlessly.
1: So in, in, our, in our view, we always ask the question, um, how much unity is necessary to get a job done? Uh, and so we'll partner with anybody when it comes to, like, uh, uh, you know, building homes for people who need homes and providing food for people who need food because you don't need much unity uh, to, 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 to do that. Um, you just need to agree that those people need help. So we'll partner with anybody to get that job done. But like running a counseling center, now there it would make a difference on how a person, for example, interprets suffering. Do they think that God ordained this or that it's something that God is against? That could make a big difference, so you need a higher degree of unity there. But uh, the task determines... And so our our central beliefs here are determined by what do we need to rally around to build the kingdom, to advance the kingdom here. And that's kind of our, our core doctrine.
2: Thank you. So Greg talked about Eastern religions in his sermon on not being the tree. I've heard of these religions all my life, like Hinduism and Buddhism and some others, but I don't really get where they are coming from. Do any of these Eastern religions believe in a loving God like Jesus revealed to us?
1: All right. It's yes, I am not the tree. Always remember that, please. Um, yeah, so I, what I'd say is, is this. I, I think the core difference is that. Um, I mean, I don't want to like, say all Eastern religions are the same. And by any means, there's a lot of differences there. But... The common denominator of the, the core Eastern worldview is the goal is, is a oneness. It's, it's, it's called monism, where uh, you, what, you're one with the, the universe or one with ultimate reality, Brahman, Nirvana, uh, they have different words for, for this experience of uh, oneness. And so the, the ultimate goal is to collapse the distinction between you and everything else. That's why I use the illustration of me thinking I was the tree uh, as, as kind of illustrating this, this uh, oneness thing. Whereas in the Christian worldview, God is ultimate reality, and even God is, is relationality. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, because God is love, and love requires an I and a thou, right? And so uh, ultimate reality is love and, and, and uh, uh, relationality. And then we are really distinct from God, which is why we can be loved by God and uh, uh, extend love back to God. Um, and so th- those are the core, core, core distinctions there. Now, there is in some forms of Buddhism and Hinduism, um, the, uh, Brahman, who is the oneness of everything, is manifested in avatars and personal manifestations, and those manifestations can be loving. Krishna, for example, uh, is an avatar, uh, an expression of Brahman, and and Krishna loves because that's a, a manifestation of it's it's part it's part of Maya or this world of illusion of distinction and stuff like that. So there is love, but the love isn't the ultimate reality. The love is a penultimate reality. And the goal ultimately is to get beyond love and uh, uh, to become one uh, with everything. So, for us, love is the ultimate reality expressed in Jesus Christ. And the world really is distinct from God. Whereas in uh, Eastern religion, it's all ultimately one. Everything else is illusion. It is interesting that
0: um, it seems like in the human heart, uh, we all know we're wired for love. So, when I think of Buddhism, uh, fascinating how Buddhism developed over the years uh, Siddhartha himself, the person we call the Buddha, which just means enlightened one, um, when he was asked about, you know, is there a God, and different religious questions, he basically was an agnostic on all that stuff. He said, I don't know if there's a God, don't know about eternal life, that's not my gig. He said, matter, basically, yeah. his philosophy, Buddhism, initially, was simply a way to avoid suffering. And so he laid out the, what he called the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, basically to avoid suffering. But as you see uh, Buddh- Buddhism develop over the years, eventually this entire tradition known as Mahayana develops. And ultimately, um, bodhisattvas, or manifestations, really, of, of uh, enlightened beings who come back and graciously now lead others uh, into, into salvation or to enlightenment. And one of these, Amida Buddha, if, if you just look at what they, a lot of people believe in Eastern, about Amida Buddha, it sounds like a very, very loving person so this buddha who originally said i don't even know if there's a god got transformed into this loving uh god god really you know who 500 years later he would never have agreed with that theology and yet there's this hunger in human hearts uh to, to find that god of love we believe and, and that actually is is uh is found in jesus christ fully
2: we um we want to also remind you guys of the phone number to text in six five one three two one thirty thirty with any of your questions in the same way that it is po- quite possible to be a Jewish follower of Jesus, is it possi- possible to be an Islamic follower of Jesus? And if so, what would that look like?
0: Oh, this is a great question. So um, it's interesting. The first part was, in the same way it's possibly a, a Jewish follower of Jesus, um, in the first generation church, the question wasn't is it possible to be a jewish follower of jesus for the apostle paul and others the question was is it possible not to be a jewish follower of jesus because of course the jewish uh, the christian movement was emerging within judaism and so one of the biggest challenges paul faced was as he's bringing the, the message to the gentile world is do you have to first become a jew before you can become a christian and of course the apostle paul's message was no you don't you can come directly to jesus christ in other words, from the very beginning, we've had to struggle as Christians with how you do Christ in culture. Um, how, how do you bring the gospel to someone that's not, say, of the same culture as Jesus was? And now it's developed to the point where, uh, let's say, in an Islamic culture, we have to raise the question, how much does a, does a person who's raised in Islam and in an Islamic culture have to leave Islam in order to be a Christian, Versus how much can they actually stay immersed in their culture of Islam, but be a follower of Jesus Christ? And this is something that missionaries on the field are really, really struggling with today. A number are finding that the more you leave a person in their culture, but able to embrace Jesus, the easier it is for them to integrate Jesus and and a passionate relationship with Jesus into the lives, rather than forcing them to, let's say, adopt a a Western American culture in order to be a, a follower of Christ. Um, and so uh, a number of missionaries that I've talked to have found that an a, a, a Islamic follower can continue to say, read the Quran, continue even to go to the mosque, but once they realize Jesus isn't just one of a series of prophets, but is actually God the Son, uh, the second person of the Trinity, that changes everything for them. And now entering into a relationship with that triune God, while still having some elements of their Islamic culture,
1: it uh, actually works pretty well. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, I, I, I've been told it's, it's the uh, most effective way to <clears throat> evangelize. <coughs> I get so choked up when I talk about the stopping. <laughs> this is so moving. Yeah. <sighs> okay, um, it, it's the most effective form of evangelism among Muslims. Um, and and the, the, this really con- contrasts with the way the West has usually done missions up until fairly recently. During the whole uh, 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 period of colonization, we virtually identified Western culture with Christianity. And so, you know, you, some of you have seen these before and after pictures when the missionaries come back and talk about what they've done, you know, beforehand. You have uh, the in, in indigenous population dressed in their traditional garb. But then the after picture, they're wearing ties and dresses and all the other kind of stuff. And we basically just westernize them. Um, and that was really a hindrance to missions because, especially with, uh, uh, in Arab countries, there's a strong resistance to Western culture. Uh, and some of it's very legitimate. You know, they don't want the kind of secular values we have here. But when you can distinguish between having a relationship with Jesus and Western culture, well, that opens the door. You don't have to buy into Western culture to buy into Jesus. In fact, if you buy into Jesus, there's aspects of Western culture you absolutely shouldn't buy into. And that's what we're called to do in terms of living a countercultural lifestyle. Um, and so, so we've come to really see that... Um, there's a worldly difference between just having a faith in Jesus and culture. Culture is, is just culture. And there can be idolatrous aspects to culture, good aspects to it, bad aspects to it. But, but uh, the culture is, itself is not Christian uh, or inherently non-Christian. It just is. And so have the introduce people to Jesus and leave the culture in place. And then Jesus begins to transform the culture from the inside out.
2: Okay, so please address how we can love those who kill innocent folks as the policemen who killed the black men in Ferguson, in Missouri and South Carolina, and even the Nazis or the Muslims beheading Christians. How do we love them? Yep.
1: How? Just do it. <laughs> just do it. Oh, yeah, it is, it, it's challenging because when you uh, see stuff like that, of course you just get, you know... You get enraged. You get enraged. That shooting just recently, five times in the back, uh, it, it just it so enrages you. Here's where it's really important to distinguish between what people do and who they are. And who they are are people that are made by God in His image, people for whom Jesus died. And to love them is just to affirm the worth of that. It's not to at all condone any of the behavior, any more than loving you know, your neighbor or your spouse or yourself. There's things you you love yourself, but there's things, I'm sure, about yourself that you don't condone. And that's what you struggle with. And so um, it's about affirming that they are worth Jesus dying for. And um, it, I, here's what I found. There's been several times where the Lord has commanded me. I really felt a strong word that I'm supposed to be praying for a certain person who's attacking me, uh, character assassination or whatever. And I find that it starts as a sheer act of obedience i just do it because i'm supposed to and so i just pray um you know lord thank you uh for creating them uh protect people from them you know whatever is good for them we're to be praying for because jesus says, love your enemies bless those who persecute you do good to those who despitefully use you and so whatever's good for them now it's good for them to be convicted of, for what they're doing so you pray for conviction there and if, if necessary you pray uh, protection from, uh, from others. But you also uh, pray that their eyes get opened and uh, that they come to see the light and that they can discover uh, the, the love that God has for them and things of that sort. And it begins by a sheer act of obedience. In fact, like you may be grinding your teeth. That's okay. Just keep on plowing forward. But I find that if you are diligent in doing that, in time you begin to actually see the truth of that. That there is an inherent worth there. Of, uh, they, have, they have an unsurpassable worth. And God begins to share with you a slice of his attitude towards them. And, um, uh, yeah, you begin to, your eyes get opened to, uh, to see the worth of a person that is deeper, a non-negotiable worth that's deeper than all their actions, all their attitude, all the harm that they've done. Uh, they, they, they were created to be in a relationship with, with Jesus, and, and uh, God desperately wants that to happen with them. And so you pray for that to, to come about. Amen.
2: So during the sermon a few weeks ago There was a quote from pascal saying that most people do something Whenever good or evil with passion because they believe they're doing it in the name of the lord Do you think doing something right in the name of god is a good thing? Obviously doing something wrong in the name of god is a bad thing
1: Take a swing
0: (laughs) Doing so well, um I mean you could it could be a different kind of Layers to that that might be motivating this question. I, what comes first to mind for me is just all the things that have been done, in the name of the Lord, over the centuries. Uh, many of them clearly, at least from my perspective, not of God. Um, I even think of, of uh, folks who get, you know, will get a sense that God has spoken the, to something to them, even a prophetic word, and will then speak with sort "Thus saith the Lord" or "The Lord told me." I personally think we have to be um, pretty careful with mm-hmm. putting the the label God said or God told me on things Um, or even do it in the name of God yeah right exactly because as soon as you do that now you've just invoked the court of heaven you've invoked the triune God behind whatever you say or sense or feel or gonna do and I, I think the only time we can legitimately and carefully do that is when we've seen Jesus do something and we're simply imitating Christ and we can say We're doing this in the the name of the Lord in the sense that we we saw Jesus and we're following in that sort of wake of Jesus.
1: Uh, Beyond that, I I get get nervous about that. That's that's absolutely right. The history of religion, uh, and including the history of the Christian religion, is characterized by people uh, wanting to give their opinions divine authority by saying that what they're doing is in the name of God. And maybe what they're doing is right and good, but it is hubris. It is arrogant, uh, and in fact, it's taking the name of the Lord in vain. Uh, when we attach God's name to our opinions on stuff. And so I think Paul's absolutely right. Uh, Do right, uh, and and, and it should should be in your mind consistent with what it is to be a follower of Jesus, but I only identify the kingdom or doing things in Jesus' name when it looks like, feels like, and manifests the love of God revealed on Calvary. Uh, If it has that kind of quality to it, it's a distinctly kingdom thing. There's a whole lot of good things that aren't distinctly kingdom. They're just decent and good. Well, do those. That's wonderful. But uh, the kingdom, it always looks like Jesus uh, dying on the cross. It always manifests that kind of self-sacrificial, humble love. That you can do in Jesus' name. Yeah. yeah.
0: Everything else. I just want to add, because I think there's an important dimension to this that attaches particularly to when someone senses they got a word from God about something. In um, particular, uh, anyone who kind of comes out of the charismatic or Pentecostal tradition you know, knows what, when you know. Maybe it's witness when someone will say, "You know, thus saith the Lord," or God told me, and I'm I'm supposed to tell you. I'll tell you the, the the person on earth that I've seen who I believe most clearly has that gift, like really gets prophetic words from God, is also the person, and it's one of the leaders here at Woodland, who um, is the most humble person in this regard. Whenever she gets a word, what she does is she brings it to community to discern is this really of God or not. And I think in our Western individualism, we like to think that, you know, God can directly download, and then we have the authority to speak whatever we want and say, you know, God told me, so you better, as opposed to letting the community discern, is this really of God? And in, in Scripture, in the New Testament, there's always a communal discernment thing, super wise, to bring those senses to, to uh, other bro- brothers and sisters to discern with us, is this really of God, before we put that label on it.
2: Excellent. So this one is kind of long So I will try to read it slowly. Regarding terrorism and loving your enemy, it is easy for us to light our incense and sing Kumbaya because we are free. Kumbaya. Please don't. Um, (laughs)
1: Kumbaya. Okay.
2: It is very possible my grandchildren could be killed one day for following Jesus. It is a great cause to die for, but I would like to avoid it. It seems wrong to sit back and let others keep me safe. I bet everyone here claims to be a pacifist but with a limit. So am I a hypocrite? What do you think God expects when it comes to keeping our kids safe?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of questions in that question. (laughs) Um, I'll take a first stab at it. Um, Here's the thing. We have to remember that when Jesus gives us and paul does the same thing in romans 12 when they tell us to love our enemies do good to those who despitefully use us and pray for them and things like that um they're living in a context where they're already under the rule of terrorists the romans were terrorists they ruled by terror anyone caused any problems for them they would go in and round up a bunch of people and crucify them on the hillside and let their bodies rot to remind folks you don't want to mess with us so it's not like they're singing kumbaya. You know, they were in the worst circumstance you can imagine. Um, and yet Jesus says, love your enemies. And this is why he ticked a lot of people off. Um, so so the, 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 the command stands. It, it, it's, it's an unconditional thing. That's why Jesus says we, we're to re- reflect the character of our Father by how we love. And he loves like the sun shines and like the rain falls. He loves indiscriminately without any qualification based on the merits of the people in front of you, whether they're friends or foe, whether they're giving you flowers or dropping a bomb. Uh, It it, it, it just falls out of us unilaterally, unconditionally. And Jesus says, do that so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Matthew 5.45. This is the qualification. Everybody loves those who bless them. Uh, There's nothing unique in that. Uh, And everybody, unless you're a follower of Jesus, the natural thing is just to hate those who who are a threat to you and to your children. And uh, that's understandable. That's understandable. The self-protection mechanism is very strong. Uh, But we are to be living in this, uh, under the rain, in the kingdom of one who fills us with his love, and that love is like the sun shines and like the rain falls. It's indiscriminate. And Jesus knows it's crazy because he goes on to specify, you know, that this, this kind of love is what sets you apart. It's the kind of love that's revealed on Calvary when God becomes a human being and dies on the cross for a race of people who are at that point his enemies. He dies for his enemies. He doesn't kill them. And that's how we're called to love. So, uh, yes, it is easier to say that than to actually do it. It's easier to say that when you're in a, uh, a land that is free and you're not under any immediate threat. And it would be more difficult, I suppose, if, if we were taken over by Romans, uh, terrorists. Um, but that doesn't alter the, the, the truth of what Jesus teaches and what he models. And that's what we're called, we're called to live in love. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. while well, we we're yet enemies. And that's why we're called to love enemies.
0: I think this, we talked earlier about culture and, and Christ. And, and how, if we're not careful, uh, we can start to think that our culture just is. We Christianize our culture, put Jesus' name on it, and call that Christianity. I think for, for, for what we call pacifism, which is really just the nonviolent way of Jesus that he called us to love in this world. For us to ever get on the inside of feeling how that's logical, how that like is something I would actually do if my child was being threatened, we've got to confront what the culture's handing us yeah. as the way life goes, as what makes sense. Because in this secular individualistic culture, what we're told is you maximize this life. you only got one life you only go around once and you make it as long as you can with as much medical technology as you can with as being as pleasurable as you can and as much money as you can because you only go around once and what jesus's kingdom says is that's a lie that is not true in fact all this life is is sort of like gestation part two right you're in you're in a womb for nine months to get from a zygote up to a little infant And then you're born into this uh, gestation part two, which is not forever. It's not to maximize. It's for one purpose, to grow into the character of Jesus Christ and to die a good death. Because guess what? None of us are getting out of here alive. Every one of us are going to die. The question is, do we die for the principles of love or do we die trying to hold on to self? And our culture tells us, hold on to self to the dying breath. And Jesus says, let go and love and forgive. Because what's really coming, called eternity, that's... That's
1: what we're living for. And it's... Amen. And praise God. Gestation part two. I like that.
2: <laughs> okay, so this question says, I know of parents who value showing their child all varieties of faith and religion so that they can choose their own path or not. How do you respond? How do you help your children see the love of God you know through kingdom-centered faith?
1: I remember a cartoon I saw one time uh, in the newspaper, where uh, uh, there's this kid about five years old. He had all these books, you know, the the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, the Quran, Book of Mormon, all in front of him, and he just looked so confused. But his parents were saying, "We want him to make his own choice on these things." (laughs) Uh, Look, you know that. The admirable side of that is that you want your 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 child to be learned and well versed and to make responsible decisions. That's good. On the other hand, if you are a follower of Jesus, you believe that there is—he is the way, the truth, and life—and so not all truth claims are equal. Um, and um, uh, while there is value certainly in all these different religions, um, they're not the way to eternal life. Uh, and and so. More important than than uh, having your child be broad-minded, which is important as time goes on, I wouldn't start at the age of five though. But more important than that is is getting them into a relationship with Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and life. So, uh, I I wouldn't be I, I I don't think it's very wise to lay it all out there as though they're all equal and say, "Oh no, you make your choice." That's putting uh, pluralism as a higher value than than being a a, a, a disciple of Jesus, uh, and I think that is uh, that has to take the priority by far. And, and plus, we have all these scriptural teachings about raising up a child in the right way, in the way that they should go. Uh, that's our first responsibility as parents. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know any parent who
0: you know, takes their child out and shows them a playground and a freeway and says, you know, you choose where you want to play, you know.
2: <laughs> where do you want to play? <laughs> or,
0: you know, Flip takes, a coin. <laughs> <laughs> or, or takes them and, and, and says, you know, this is how you share with, with John or Susie, and this is how you steal from Kmart. You, you make the choice. In other words, we're constantly shaping our kids into a worldview that we think is true and right. Why, when it comes to the question of spirituality, would we go, oh, well, that's just kind of all open, you know? Uh, It's like, wait, truth is truth, and if it's truth, it's truth, and if it's not, it's not. And I think that's kind of what what this whole Mixed Signals series has been, is that we're claiming one can be very, uh, have a lot of conviction about the truth of Jesus Christ, as much as, you know, don't play in the freeway and yet can hold that, that truth with humility and love for those that, are, that we disagree with. And I think that, that's the important balance, once again. And with kids, it, you're shaping them again into what is true.
1: Even, even putting out all the books in front of them and saying, make your own choice, is shaping them in a worldview. Yes. It's a worldview where all the religious claims are equal, and individual choice is the ultimate value, yes. and that's a worldview. It's just not the right one. I
2: like it. All right. So it seems that we get a great deal of mixed signals from our own religion, specifically with issues such as supporting gay marriage, secular music, and other personal beliefs. Do these issues really determine whether you go to heaven, and how important should we treat these opinions?
1: It kind of goes back to your concentric circle thing. It does. It? So elaborate, right? Well, it. it look- yeah, you'll recall from a few minutes ago that there's there's a center which is Jesus Christ uh, and what He reveals about God and the way of life we're called to, to uh, live, and then there's there's uh, dogma which is the central creeds, and then there's doctrine uh, which are the interpretation of the creeds, and then there's opinion, and most of those issues, certainly the ones that, that were raised there, uh, would fall under the category of opinion, and and the thing is we, we're called we need to have a love uh, for one another that is greater than our differences. Um, and, in fact, a love that's just predicated on being homogenous on all opinions is not a very great love. It's easy to love folks that you agree with on everything. Um, it takes a greater love to love uh, folks that, have, that differ from you, that have different opinions on, and stuff. So um, th- those are great things to discuss and to debate, and, and as long as you're all doing it in love. But uh, most of those things shouldn't divide us. But, again, the level of unity that you need is, is predicated on what mission are you called to carry out. And, and so you, you should rally around whatever core beliefs are necessary to carry out this job, uh, but don't add on a bunch of things because that will then uh, block your ability to carry out the mission. And you'll end up debating issues more than you are serving the poor and the needy and others that we're called to serve. Yeah. And I think the last part of that question is an important one to factor
0: in as well because the question was, about, will, do
2: they go to heaven, do they go to
0: heaven yeah. right? So now all of a yeah. sudden, a theological difference gets played out as an eternal question like if if i'm wrong or if you're wrong one of us is going to hell and it's fascinating you know how jesus approaches the hell question one is that he's pretty clear in matthew 25 that the people who are sure they're going many of them aren't and a bunch of people who had no idea they were going actually were so in other words it's what's called the great reversal Um, one no one should have any arrogance. That they're the right one and someone else is the wrong one going to hell. That's pretty clear from Jesus. And two, it's also very clear that Jesus is the judge of that, no human being. And so we can go into really, I think, intense and passionate discussions with each other about different beliefs, realizing one, that that doesn't have to touch our love for each other, and two, that we have no business judging anyone's uh, eternal destiny about this. Jesus is judge. He's omniscient. Thank God he's dealing with that question.
1: Just ask the question. How many theological questions did Jesus ask the thief on the cross? Exactly. You're welcome then. Uh, that guy, is, I'm sure he didn't have a, a real coherent and accurate theology. Uh, but the the bar is pretty low. God looks at the heart. And uh, that's the ultimate determiner of one's Amen. destiny. All
2: right. So we I think we can grab two more. Um, are you guys ready?
1: Oh, we can squeeze in three it. or four, I'm sure. Of it. Oh, dear We're Lord. so good at succinctness.
2: Okay, let's see. We're not. Let's yeah, see how let's... we go. All right. I was talking to an atheist friend recently about God and morality. I have read C.S. Lewis on this point, and so I said that since humans obviously believe in real, objective right and wrong, this most likely means that God exists. My friend said that we don't need a God to explain morality because the theory of evolution explains why people have developed a sense of right and wrong. Have either of you heard of this atheist atheist argument? And if so, how would you respond?
1: Yeah, yeah, um... I'll, I'll you, you heard this once in a debate, I think. I, I did, I did. If I, uh, no, is, we, we have to be succinct here, so okay. I won't tell you how I got my butt kicked on that one. But uh,
2: this is
1: why I hadn't heard want it. To talk about that. I know it, I, I had prepared for a totally different debate. Uh, so here's the thing: is that yeah, there's a claim that uh, on the basis of evolution, you can have an objective morality, right and wrong, and you, so you don't need to appeal to any higher God. Now, I wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't base your belief on God on the need for morality to have a grounding, though that is one good argument for his existence. I think. But uh, t- two, two issues with that, I think, uh, succinctly here. Uh, one is, if that was the case, I don't, how could you have uh, wide swaths of human beings who differ uh, fundamentally on uh, issues of morality? For example, Nazi Germany. If, if this is an inherent thing that we've evolved, you shouldn't have, it'd be possible to have a million, two million, however many million people uh, were thinking that the extermination of the Jews was a good thing. So that, that's, that's one issue. Uh, and yet we'd want to say they were wrong about that, that it was unethical what they did. So how is that possible if this is an inherent trait? The second thing is this. um, Granting evolution, uh, that describes what is, but it doesn't describe what ought to be. And as philosophers commonly say, you can't jump from an is to an ought. In other words, in in this account of morality, our sense of good and evil is, is, is no different than the fact that we have our ears the way we have it, or our nose the way we have it. You can't prescribe a morality on the basis of something that, that we just happen to evolve. It's accidental. We, we just accidentally came to have this preference. We, we, we tend to like this and not like that. But that doesn't mean we ought to like this and not like that. You see? So there's no ought there. Um, and, and the ones who hold this view, they, they often will admit that once you understand what morality really is, it's not morality. It, it is just an accidental preference that we evolved. And so you, you kind of exploded the secret. People, in other words, people need to st- uh, be under this illusion that there's something prescriptive in our morality mm-hmm. in order to treat it like morality. And as soon as you wake up to the fact that, no, it's just like an ear or a nose or anything else that we just sort of by chance evolved, well, then there, there's no compulsion. There, 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 uh, there is no ultimate uh, right or wrong in this. And so it's, it's not a good argument for objective morality. You should have known that when you went for that debate. I set. should have. <laughs> I live and learn.
2: Are we good? Yeah. That one? Okay. So we want to thank you guys for sending in your questions, and um, we're going to hit one more. And we want to remind you to watch all three podcasts because we ask different questions in each service, so there's not overlap. So if you want to fully know all the answers, then watch all of the podcasts. We also want to remind you guys about the volunteer appreciation Socialization and fellowship that's happening
1: Socialization <laughs> <laughs> Learn your social skills out there
2: We're doing it um, Out in the gathering area Refreshments and snacks and just goodies And good fellowship so please join us for that Okay Alright right. First John four eighteen Says perfect love drives out Fear but terrorists Scare me and some other people Do too so how can I Love someone I'm afraid of and get Free of this fear
0: Take us home, Greg. Uh, well,
2: OK.
1: Um, well, look, here's the thing. It's natural to be afraid of people who are threatening you. And that's a, a human a human thing, uh, self-preservation. Um, but we understand that, that uh, what I'd encourage this person and all of us to do is that when we have that fear, um, It's because we have we're we're focused. Our eyes are strictly on the threat. As long as you're staring at that threat, it's going to be triggering you. And there needs to be a time where you can zoom out and, as Paul said earlier, look at the big big picture, Um, uh, a God's eye view of things. That this whole life is just a nanosecond in preparation for eternity. And uh, and see the the bigger your vision is of God and of, of and of your life and of the world the smaller that particular threat becomes. Uh, that, that's helpful at least in starting to assuage the, the, the fear. But the second thing then is to, and this is the more important thing even, is, is um, when there is fear there, that is just an indication that your love is not yet perfected. And, um, and the solution to that isn't to try to crank out more love on your own. Like, oh, I do, I do, I do love. Although there's a time, as I said earlier, to just obediently be you know, moving forward in the direction that God calls you. But but you can't just crank that out on your own. You need to be receiving more of that love. And so I would encourage you to be spend time where you're just fellowshipping with Jesus, envisioning Jesus loving on you, uh, pouring his love into you, reminding you of uh, the, your unsurpassable worth that he ascribes to you on Calvary, uh, while you were yet an enemy. And as you receive that, we can't give what we don't have, but as you receive that and are, are filled with that, and realize that this is going to last forever and ever, it, it, it frees us to let go, to, to not cling to life. Uh, whenever we cling, we are going to be in fear. In fact, that's why we cling. We're afraid of losing. Um, only those who, can, who have learned to let go and live life with open palms uh, are, are able to love indiscriminately, like the sun shines and, and the rain falls. One, one other thing I'll, I would say is this uh, I find this exercise to be very helpful in prayer. Uh, it came to me oh, uh, over a decade ago. Uh, I got this kind of a vision as I was praying. And in in this vision, and let the Holy Spirit tailor it in your own life, but it's it's sort of a rehearsal for death, uh, where uh, I'm I'm standing on the banks of this river, and uh, I'm aware that Jesus is in the back of me. I'm not yet looking at him, but he's in back of me. And there's a little, like, raft on this river. And then everything in my life that I value is brought before me, sometimes in a symbolic form, but I know what it is. Like, for example... Uh, Books are there because I value learning and I love education and and all that. Well, that gets put on the raft, and and then you know my health. However you that gets symbolized, that gets put on the raft, Um, and then the the raft goes down the river, and that's of course it's the river of time. And then it turns a bend and goes out of sight, and then uh, there's another raft there, and I have to put on other things. And eventually I have to put on my loved ones, my kids, my wife, my friends. Even Paul's been sent down the river a couple times. And see, and and it's a way of, 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 and then when it's all done, I turn to Jesus, and I, I confess, "You are enough. You you are enough." Um, and, and see, it's it's, it's, it's you're rehearsing because really, all of life is a process of letting go. Uh, as Paul said before, the one thing you'd be sure of is, unless, until the Lord comes back, we're going to die. You do lose it all. So start practicing that now. And. As you said earlier, uh, I never I'd be quoting you several times in one answer, but um, <laughs> uh, that, that the whole life is really to die well. It's a process of dying and to die well. So you, we're never good at anything if we don't practice it, and prayer is a great time to practice letting go. And you'll find that as you do that, you get better and better at, at You still enjoy the books and enjoy the health, enjoy it, but don't cling to it because uh, you're going to lose it. And um, Jesus is enough. At the end of the day... Jesus is sufficient, and at the end of the day, Jesus is all we got. Amen? All right.
2: So we're going to jump right in, and um, this question was emailed in this week. Uh, They say, I've been attending Woodland Hills for a couple of years now. A few times when I've told Christian friends where I go to church, they have expressed some worries. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, oh no! Right out of the gate.
2: <laughs> right out of the gate. Um, one of them even used the word heretic when they were referring to Greg.
1: The H word. Shh,
2: so what's the deal? And what should I say in response? Burn them. <laughs> <laughs> <Get out. laughs>
0: I've been around here 20 years and I'm still wondering what the deal is with you and that heresy thing. What
1: a great friend. What a great friend. Always got my back. You should answer that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll give it a <laughs> yeah. thanks. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. I've he known is. Greg for almost, almost 30 years and I think I can safely say Greg attracts controversy. That's, you know, it's just know. who he is, right? Um, but I'm guessing. I'm guessing if someone is actually that worried that you're attending Woodland Hills, there's probably one particular issue um, that they're thinking about. And you know, if you go to Woodland, it, it's, it's, you need to know about this because it's out there. Um, uh, Greg was. It's, it's kind of died down now, but 10, 15 years ago, this was probably the hottest issue in theology land in America. Uh, and Greg was, was right, theology dead land. center of this controversy. And it has to do with this. Uh, question of how God's foreknowledge works about future events, right? And
1: it's about the nature of reality. Whatever. Of the of the it's not I'm like talking right now. Thirty years, you still don't have the position, know, right? God. You're the heretic. You're a heretic. Let me explain it, right? <laughs> yeah. So,
0: Greg has this view. That's a minority view. He's always admitted it's a minority view. He thinks it's right. He's wrong. I uphold his right to be wrong. <laughs> But but here's the thing. One, uh, what I would say is two things you need to know about this if you're at wood. one is uh, what the view is. And what you'll often be told Greg believes is that Greg doesn't believe that God has omniscience, that he doesn't know all things. And that's not Greg's view. From day one, Greg has been very clear that, that his view is God does know all things. He is omniscient. Uh, rather, Greg has a unique view of the future and how the future... Uh, works, what its consistent possibilities of, are real. He believes possibilities are real. And that has an effect on how God knows that, right? So, so know what it doesn't mean, because a lot of people are very confused. I, seriously, uh, in dealing with this topic, Greg and I disagree on this topic, but probably 99 times out of 100, what I end up doing in this conversation with people is enlightening them on the view that Greg actually holds, because no one gets what Greg actually believes. Secondly, I think... <laughs> I don't think Greg gets it, quite frankly.
2: Um, Love one another.
0: Possibilities are real. That's all you gotta... <laughs> Secondly, important to know that Wooden Hills has never made Greg's view on this the Wooden Hills view. In fact, we've explicitly stated in the statement we have on this that we don't hold a single position on this, that it's okay to disagree with the senior pastor on Believe this. Believe it or not. In fact, I, I make a point of disagreeing on this every chance I get with, with Greg. Um, You've got to kind of decide, you know, are you going to go with me? Are you going to trust a guy who, last I heard, spent a significant amount of his life believing it was a Christmas tree, all right? You <laughs> make the choice, so. It was
1: one night. <laughs> okay, that's long enough, all right? I've got a good excuse. That's not a good excuse, but it is All right, here you go. Thanks right for that clarification. Then. Well,
2: thank you guys. Uh, Throughout this Mixed signal series, a constant theme was that we can have strong convictions about the truth of Christianity, but still be humble in how we communicate this to others. That sounds like a great idea, but in actual practice, it seems that these two things are incompatible. For example... Being humble means being tentative and less than certain, but having conviction means being bold and confident about what one believes. Practically speaking, how can you do both things at the same time?
1: You've written a book on this. I am doing it in love. Uh, No, here's the thing. Uh, uh, I'll take a first swing at this. Um, It's true that usually I think the way the world works is that people identify being bold, uh, maybe aggressive with their views as being confident. And people are tentative as being humble. Uh, but in the kingdom, I don't think those are, uh, those two are necessarily correlated. Um, you can be very confident of a, of a view, but to be humble just means you remember that you're human. You're human, and so you hold it as a human. Uh, that, that, so you listen to an alternative opinion. Uh, and... Uh, Uh, yeah, genuinely take in their arguments. I mean, after all these years, I still listen to Paul's arguments, even though I know I'm virtually certain he's wrong. But humility dictates that I, you know, still ascribe worth to him by by being humble about it. Wouldn't you agree I'm humble about these things? So anyways, um, and and the the other thing is that the reason why I think uh, we tend to identify confidence with with boldness and loud voices and whatever is because uh, often people get their life, their worth, their significance and security by believing they're right. Uh, and so when someone challenges their rightness, well, then they get huffy-puffy about stuff. Um, whereas in the kingdom, we're not to get life from the rightness of our views, but from Jesus Christ. Uh, and what God thinks about us on Calvary. And so that means we, 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 you hold to your convictions, but you don't get life from them. And so you're not threatened when someone questions them. And that means you can talk calmly about things and, and humbly about things. So I, I think it's, it's uh, very compatible to have a, a firm conviction about things. Uh, but uh, to express them uh, in, a, in, a t- in a humble way uh, as a human being and always in a way that ascribes worth to the other person that you're dialoguing with. As I said in the first two services, I'll say it again here. Uh, Paul says, do everything in love. First Corinthians 16, uh, verse 14. Do everything in love. And love is about ascribing worth to another, even across to yourself if necessary. And, um, and so if at any point in any kind of dialogue, winning the debate becomes more important than expressing love to the person, I always encourage people to do the kingdom a huge favor and shut up. Uh, because uh, even if you're right, you're wrong. Do <laughs> in love. Yes.
2: All right. So what exactly is a Christian worldview? Well,
1: succinctly. In one minute, Paul. Go ahead. <laughs> Go. Well, well. I could answer that. Yeah, how do you? I think, you know... So if we're
0: talking about worldview we're talking about the way someone makes sense out of reality every human being has a, a worldview because we are by really by definition almost human beings are sense makers we we have this incoming data that hits us from the time we're born and we're trying to organize and unify and make sense out of that that's a worldview what's a christian worldview i think is is a way of making sense out of all of reality that puts the revelation of god in jesus christ at the center of that worldview and so uh, we've often said here at Woodland Hills that th- there can be a lot of beliefs that we have but in terms of our beliefs as Christians the fundamental center of that is always Jesus and then the beliefs sort of move out from there um, we can talk about you know really important central beliefs that we call dogmas or little less important but nonetheless uh, theories about our dogmas we call doctrines and finally opinions that uh, Greg and I for example consider the thing we we're just talking about that we disagree on an opinion level thing and so we we can, you know, be on the same pastoral team, be great friends, write books together, and we disagree on certain things. And as long as Jesus is anchoring this, and we got the basic, mere Christianity, you know, the idea that that, there, that there's a triune God, that He sent His Son, that we are uh, broken humans in need of salvation, that Jesus has come to do that, and that He's coming again to redeem us. You know, mere Christianity, as C.S. Lewis would say, that, that's the center of it. And then
1: all of us have differences beyond that. It's important to. Always distinguish. So a Christian worldview, is, uh, your view of the world is organized around Jesus Christ, the revelation of God in Christ. Um, that, that's the core of it. But it's important to distinguish that from the American worldview yeah. or the Arab worldview or Eastern worldview. Um, there, there can be overlaps with those things for sure, but never identify the dominant worldview of your culture as a Christian worldview because there's aspects of our culture and every culture that are inconsistent Yes. Uh, with the view of the world that is org- uh, or, organized around or structured around the person of Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: As Christians, we are told to see God as a loving father figure. However, there are many stories in the Bible that make me not see him as such. How can I love a father who smites his children?
1: <laughs> succinctly. <yes>.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
2: succinctly.
1: Uh, that book you've been working on for eight years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, this. yeah, I'm, I've... I'm, I, I really am almost done. I'm done with the, the bulk of it. It's 1,200 pages long, two volumes. and uh, How and, many uh, appendices, I, I'm now working on the appendices, so there's six of those. So, uh, but, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's getting close, so close, so close. But, okay, here, here's uh, the shortest thing I could say about that is this. Um, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. He says, if you see me, you see the Father. Uh, he's called the Word of God. He's not one word among many. He is the Word. Um, Hebrews 1.3 is so crucial in the past God spoke in various times various ways and partial glimpses but in these last days which is the whole epic since Jesus came he's spoken to us by his own son who is the very radiance of his glory when God shines it looks like Jesus and the exact representation of God's essence so in the past they had glimpses but now we get the real thing and in the past they saw aspects of his character but now we see what God's like down to his very essence Uh, And so it's important to not have a a, a smorgasbord kind of picture of God where you put together different pieces and every verse is equally authoritative. Um, No, it's all got to be anchored in Jesus Christ. Uh, Our exclusive understanding of God's character is found in uh, the person of Jesus Christ, especially Christ crucified. Uh, Now, that raises the question, what about these other glimpses they had? And that's where I have a book that's 1,200 pages long. I I would just say this. I'll say one little word and then then we uh, move on. Because I could talk forever on this. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, so resolve it. However, whatever sense you make of Old Testament, genocide, all that other stuff, that God looks say Jesus Christ dying on the cross. That's the real character of God. Um, and then as we read the Old Testament, we're to, we're to do it. Jesus says, everything points to me. John 5, Luke 24. It's all about me. And so we have to read the entire Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. Knowing that this is what God's really like, well then let's interpret everything else uh, in light of that. So read, read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross. Um, and, and part of what it means to do that, and this is my opinion, this isn't doctrine, certainly not dogma, and certainly not the center. But here's one opinion. Um, you know, I noticed on the cross that God, uh, becomes, that God became a human being and then uh, bore our sins on the cross and, and entered into solidarity with our curse. And then he takes on an appearance that reflects that sin and reflects that curse. And so when, when, when you look at the cross, I mean, how does the cross reveal the very essence of God? It's not what you see on the surface that, that, that we identify as the, the uh, revelation of God because on the surface, what you see is a guilty, uh, or a, a, a apparently guilty, a God-forsaken criminal. In fact, the ugliness of the cross, and it is ugly, it reflects the ugliness of our sin. But what, the cross becomes a, a, the definitive revelation of God for us when we, by faith, Know what else is going on. We look behind the scenes. By faith, we know that it was God who stepped into this ugly appearance. Because he, he enters into solidarity with our sin and our curse. Right? And so it's, it's, it's not the surface that reveals God. It's what we know is going on behind the scenes. By faith. It's not what the natural eye can see. It's what we by faith see. that God's, was, His love is revealed in his willingness to stoop down to this level and appear so ugly because he's entered into solidarity with the ugliness of our sin. Now, if the cross reveals... What God's really like, it reveals what God's always like. So it makes sense as we read the Bible to ask the question, where else might we find God stooping to enter into solidarity with the fallenness and the sin and the cultural conditioning of his people, uh, to meet them where they're at, and thereby to take on an appearance that reflects not how he actually is, but reflects their sin. It's not what we see on the surface of the text that then reveals God to us. It's what we know is going on behind the scenes, that this cruciform, a humble God, steps in to the sin and the ugliness of people, and and bears it and uh that gets reflected in the record of his his written record of his covenantal faithfulness which is what the bible is so that's one way of looking at it interesting my opinion
2: so since you mentioned your book greg someone wants to know when a cliff notes version will be made available
1: (laughs) yeah i i will as soon as i get this done i'll knock off a uh, more popular level version of it uh the version i've been working on for eight and a half years is very academic uh, of the 1,200 pages. You've helped me with the footnotes. What is it, about 400 pages of footnotes? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... It, it, because if you're carving out a new perspective, you've got to cross every T, dot every I, and cover your bases, and uh, deal with every argument. So that's going to be very academic, but I plan on writing a, a 100, 150-page kind of uh, popular-level version of it uh, as soon as I'm done, so... Okay. Complete so, with pictures.
2: Do you think if Jesus was invited to a barbecue and was offered a beer, he would accept? <laughs> A beer. A beer. A whiskey.
1: You say, do you have any scotch? (laughs) (laughs) Good.
0: Well, (laughs) well. Jesus was invited to a number of parties, and um, I was I was told when I was a kid because I I grew up in Baptist circles. Well, you didn't drink beer or anything like that. That Jesus, you know, that the beer or wine of Jesus Day was non-alcoholic. Grape juice, (laughs) which always raised questions for me when Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm Baptist. I know I'm in a Baptist church here, but I I think Jesus would have... Okay. My boss here. Um, I think Jesus would have drank beer because he drank wine. I think Jesus would have done it wisely, like he did most things. I think Jesus would have followed all things, okay. I think Jesus would have followed uh, Paul's wise advice to be... um, be mastered by nothing, and to, to, to do all things in in love and uh, in proportion. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think you will.
1: But I'm sure if there was, uh, if if the party was being, if there's a lot of folks who are in recovery uh, from bondage to that. Well, good, good point. He would, always put he, his brothers and saying, sisters
0: ahead, and they're there. Yeah. yeah, yeah because, good, good and Paul
1: point. tells us to do that. Don't cause another to stumble. Good so, point. It depends on the so it depends. Depends on context. But there's a reason why. Oh, one more thing. You know. He, he actually had a reputation of being a drunkard yeah. and a womanizer and all of that because he hung out with those people. Uh, and so the Pharisees were always accusing of him. And that would be impossible if he was drinking grape juice. Good point. I think about it. <laughs> 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 You're guilty of drinking too much grape juice. With <laughs> oh, got purple mm. on your lips.
2: <laughs> all right. So if Jesus is God, how is it possible for God to abandon Jesus on the cross? Ooh.
1: You have a section in your book on that. Yeah, okay, <laughs> okay uh, here's how I see this. I mean, what's going on there is Jesus becomes the sin bearer of all the sin in the world and then experiences the death consequences of sin. That's the judgment of God. It's not that God's personally angry at him, but he sta- as he stands in solidarity with our sin, sin pushes God away. And the ultimate judgment of sin is God withdrawing, and then we suffer the, the innate consequences of sin. So Jesus does it for the, all the world. And uh, for that to be authentic, there has to be, the the father removes himself. And it's experienced like abandonment. which is why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's why you have all this delivering over language. You know, Paul says that God delivered him over uh, to uh, bear our sins. Uh, That's the language of judgment being uh, being used there. Now, does that mean that there's actually a a, a split the Trinity for a period of time? Because that would be pretty weird. I mean, God, God's very definition is, is love. And, and, uh, if that's his very, if that's his essence, well, then it would be destroying his essence if there's actually a split. So then the question becomes, this by the way is my opinion, it's not a doctrine, but the question becomes, how can God experience the split uh, without actually being split? Because I God, the triune God can't be ontologically in, in, in his essence split. So here's, here's a way of thinking about it. Uh, The father removed himself from Jesus on the cross, and Jesus stepped into being crucified on the cross out of love. Everything he did was out of love. and spirit was involved in that too, Hebrews 9 says. Um, And so it's all done out of love. And so here's the irony of this. I mean, there God went to the furthest extreme he could go on our behalf. The all-holy God becoming our sin. um, The perfectly united God experiencing Separation. Uh, He couldn't have gone any further than he went. And that's why the cross is the perfect revelation of his love. The infinite distance to which God went, the unsurpassable distance that God went on our behalf, reveals the infinite perfection of his love. And so the irony is that, precisely when Jesus is experiencing abandonment, we are seeing the perfect expression of the love that unites the triune God. That love is so great that they're willing to experience separation on our behalf. And and so, the Here's an analogy. That may help. I don't know, but um, imagine. Oh, this may take a little too long to unpack. I'll, I'll try to do it. Okay. <laughs> so imagine a husband and wife, and their son gets kidnapped or something. Okay, and, and and so the only way to rescue them is for by a gang. There's a gang that kidnapped their son, and so to rescue them, uh, the the wife has to uh, go into this gang uh, and. Uh, the only way to do that authentically is for her to take this pill that causes amnesia or something like that. And so she, she enters into solid, and, and so she has to, for a while, forget who she is. Um, and then she goes in there, and then the pill is <laughs> designed to wear off at a certain point where she wakes up, and then she can rescue her son from the inside of this game. Follow me so far? <laughs> now, for a while, they, they, they're not, they, she doesn't know their husband and wife. There's a, there's a separation there because she took the amnesia pill. Uh, and yet, because she did that out of love, and, he, and, and, the, and the husband was willing to do it out of love, that, that apparent separation is actually a perfect expression of their love. Their love for each other, their love for their, their, for their son. Something like that. It's an analogy. Uh, they, it, when you enter into an experienced separation out of love, the experienced separation is actually an expression of love, and so it is with Jesus on the cross. Think about it. You ever thought of writing movie scripts? <laughs> Movies... <laughs> Don't, don't, don't. Don't.
2: Okay, this question says, I know that Greg and Paul have both written on the topic of spiritual warfare. I also know that the Bible talks a lot about spirits and such, but modern people don't seem to experience these things like ancient people say they did. Isn't it possible that things like angels and demons are just ancient ways of explaining natural forces they didn't understand? What credible evidence is there for believing in the reality of these things?
0: Ooh, yeah. Good question. Good question. Yeah, we've been pretty invested in in the notion of spiritual warfare. I think it's our 18th year. We're teaching the class class class. at Bethel this spring. Um, Yeah, so I think I always kind of start with C.S. Lewis's point of balance on this. Lewis, in his book Screwtape Letters, I think it was, said that there's uh, equal and opposite errors people can fall into when it comes to the demonic. One is, uh, one extremist to sort of ignore them or just forget they exist, which is really where our culture has gone on that. Our secular culture largely acts as if this thing is a Beth mythology, if we even think about it at all. And that really has affected our, our Christians in our culture. So frequently, I, in my life, for example, I grew up in the church, and if you would have asked me up till I was age 21, do you believe in demons, I would have said, well, yes, because Jesus... Believed in them, and I believe Jesus is right about things and all that. But if you would have asked me, so what? What differences do your belief make in your life? The, the real answer would have been nothing. I, I, I never think about it. I don't act as if they're real. Um, so I, I would have fallen in for many years to that one ditch. Lewis talks about kind of ignoring them. Lewis said there's also the opposite ditch, which is once you begin to believe in these things, you can get to the point of obsession. Or real fear over these things, and that the, the kind of a fear dimension starts to control your life on this. And Lewis says there's a, there's a, a kingdom balance there that clearly Jesus and Paul and the other biblical authors expressed um, At age 21, I experienced a demonic entity. Uh, it's it, it rocked my world. Uh, it put me in about a year-long tailspin about how to make sense out of that, and I came through that, uh, having my worldview significantly expanded. Um, so I guess one answer is. Experience really changes things. Yeah. Um, now, uh, in terms of credible evidence, I guess where I would turn, Greg and I actually have a, a, a manuscript sitting somewhere in some one of our desk drawers that we wanted to write a book someday. On we'll someday, publish it about evidence for for spirits. And it's increasingly, increasing. anthropologists who go and work in cultural contexts where this stuff is, is more accepted, Western-trained, secular, often atheist anthropologists, a number of them have exp- have come back and expressed that we saw stuff. Uh, probably the most well-known example, stuff. Uh, Edith Turner, uh, who was with Vic Turner, one of the leading uh, anthropologists of the 20th century, was working with an African tribe in the 1980s. And during a ritual that she thought was just, she would have said superstition, she says she saw uh, an entity uh, emerge out of the back of somebody and hover, levitate in midair. And she said, she came back and said, I, I've been wrong. Uh, these people are right. They're our spirit entities. Um, so I think experience is a major factor in this. I
1: wrote an essay called The Spirits Are Real, and just saying the Western worldview that rules them out, uh, we're, we're the ones that are blind to this stuff. And what you, you find is in almost every culture, uh, reports of supernatural uh, occurrences as people are demonized. And so it's, it's, it's really widespread. The only thing I'd add to that is this. There are culturally conditioned things in the Bible, yeah. uh, and we need to take that into consideration uh, as we interpret it. But... The belief in demons uh, and angels and principalities and powers and Satan, it's not like that's a peripheral thing, especially in the New Testament. Uh, this is the centerpiece of the narrative. Everything Jesus does is done as an act of war against this kingdom of darkness. Uh, and so this isn't like a little kind of you know, incidental thing here. Uh, and so in, in this respect, if you, if, I, if you believe Jesus is the Son of God, and I do, and I think there's good reasons for that, then I, I'm going to take his, his perspective on this as, as definitive. It's not a little tiny matter. This is the centerpiece of things. And I don't think Jesus was wrong about theology. Uh, And this thing, he was authoritative.
2: In Greg's talk on hell, he mentioned that God will withdraw the gift of existence. How does God know if there is hope for one to turn before withdrawing the gift of existence?
1: He's omniscient. I actually believe in omniscience. (laughs) He's all-knowing. He knows everything. Uh, And so he sees the human heart. He knows the human heart. And uh, I I believe as as long as there's hope, uh, out of love, God tries to uh, turn them around. He will not coerce. Um, love has to be chosen, but He does woo. And, and uh, I, I, as long as there's hope for that one lost sheep, I think God will do everything possible to turn them. But He, he knows the hum- he, he knows our hearts perfectly. And if there's a point where it's hopeless, in my view, this isn't dogma, this isn't doctrine, this is his Greg. But in my view, then He mercifully and justly. It's, they, it's it's like euthanasia because if they were to continue on existing it would be sheer torment for them uh, so it's merciful and yet it's just because this is the course they've chosen so he he just withdraws uh, existence uh, scripture says that everything's held up uh, by the the power of his word hebrews 1 3 it's all held up by the power of his word so all he needs to do is to stop speaking and uh there they are i don't know if is that your view are you wrong on this one, too? <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Insulting is our love language, by the way. We always have to tell you why.
2: I have recently seen division amongst Christians with issues of race brought forth by recent events. What scriptures do you look to when having these conversations?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. I
0: think front and center has to be Ephesians, too. Yeah, sure. I mean... We frequently talk about um, the atoning work of Jesus, what Jesus did to to bring salvation to us. Um, I don't remember all my years growing up in church, um, Ephesians 2 being brought into the conversation. I would hear verses out of Romans about Jesus dying for my sin, which is all, all important and true. But in Ephesians, Paul says, another reason Jesus died was to break down the walls of division amongst us human beings and to create one new human being taking that which was divided in this case the big division was jew and gentile um, but we could add a lot of different ethnicities and a lot of things tribalisms that divide human beings and breaking those down uh, creating a bear, a bridge uh destroying walls and creating bridges so that one new human being in jesus christ is is emerges out of the, the very point of the death of jesus christ so this is front and center part of the gospel mm-hmm.
1: And the, 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 the gist of that is that you know, Paul says that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile. That doesn't mean that we pretend that we don't notice the difference between uh, Europeans and African Americans and Asian Americans and, and, and all the diversity that's out there. It just means we don't get our life from, the, yeah, from that identity. Uh, identity is found in Christ. And among the things that should do is to free us. We're no longer trying to protect our identity as white people or as black people or as Asian people or Native Americans or anything. So that should allow us to be able to uh, try to enter into the the perspective of others and to hear their perspective Um, and enter into their experience and to hear their stories. And that broadens you. Um, Without that, see, we're locked in in our own myopic perspective. One of the things that's going on right now in this culture, uh, it's... It's interesting, it's it's tense, and, and the church needs to model what it is to talk and love about these issues. But um, all these things that are being caught on camera, like it was happened this last week, uh, with that terrible... Well, it didn't happen last week, but it just got shown on the news this last week, of, of that African-American man being shot five times in the back as he's trying to run away. Um, the other thing that's being caught on camera is like... Now bring... This is Ben... The experience of African Americans, folks, for well, from the start, Uh, and now it's being brought to the surface. The only way that it wasn't for these cameras, we wouldn't know about a lot of this. Uh, But if if for for white folks, if we don't have relationships with folks that are, are that have a different experience of police force and of many other things, then we would easily just dismiss it. Oh, you're exaggerating. Oh, you know, because our experience is different. It tends to be different anyways. Um, and so there, what's needed is for, for there to be trustworthy relationships with folks that have a life experience different from your own to hear their stories. And that, that transitions us from judgment and dismissal to compassion and empathy. And uh, that is the all-important thing. It's, uh, it's, just, it's vital. That's vital. And the truth needs to be able to, to model that.
2: Amen. Within Islam, what's the difference between Sunni and Shia beliefs? Is it just a tribal thing, or do they have different beliefs?
0: Hmm. Yeah, Islam, um, you know, almost every summary of, of the beliefs of Islam I've ever seen uh, can summarize the, the gist of Islamic faith in, in five main beliefs. Uh, the oneness of God, uh, the belief in spirit beings, angels and, and jinn or demons, Um, About humans, they would say that humans are fundamentally good but ignorant uh, of the ways of Allah and and therefore not submissive to Allah's ways. Uh, Fourthly, that Allah has brought revelation, primarily through prophets, messengers and obviously uh, eventually the Quran. And finally the fifth major belief um, uh, that at the end of time all people will be resurrected, stand before Allah in judgment and then the heaven and hell options. In terms of Sunni-Shia divide, which is the major division in Islam, as far as I'm aware, they all, both sides, would agree with those five basic belief pillars of of Islam theology. Um, as far as I'm aware, the division goes back to the fourth leader after uh, Muhammad died, in the debate about whether uh, Muhammad's successors should be elected. Or whether they should be from the family bloodline—that's that, a fundamental divide. Sunnis believing they should—it doesn't have to be family; it can be elected. Uh, Shi'a is believing that Ali the fourth should have been the first because he was the only blood-related person, and that blood should have been the, the determining factor. So it's fundamentally a divide of leadership questions, and not theology. Now, since then, of course, a lot of different cultural dimensions have divided them in the intervening centuries. Uh, Hussein's tomb is very important to the Shias and not so much to the Sunnis but fundamentally the theology is very similar
1: in although the, they, they have a um, because of that division uh, different courses of tradition develop yeah. and especially on commenting on the Quran and uh, they reg- have different authorities uh, then, uh, and, uh, as to how to interpret the Quran so then that does lead to uh, while they agree on these five main things there's, there's a lot of different particular beliefs yeah as it comes to interpreting certain passages or whatever. But it, it, it's surprising that there's so much bloodletting over you know, these things when they agree on the core. Well, but it's no surprise because Christians exactly. agree on the core, and we've killed each other. Thirty years' wars of yeah. Christians
0: were Calvinist Lutherans and Catholics killing each other about those sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. Um,
2: how do I lovingly communicate to my more evangelical friends that what they call telling the truth in love actually makes them look like a jerk? <laughs>
1: Because <laughs> I forgot the in love part. <laughs> he tells you, in love. Well, yeah? love's about ascribing worth to another. The Bible defi- defines love as by pointing us to the cross. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we should lay down our life for one another. So it always is about expressing worth, the way God expresses it to us, and at cross to ourselves, if necessary, uh, by sacrificing for another. So we need to speak the truth. That's about being honest. But uh, uh, we don't get life from the things that we think are true. Uh, that's usually the case when people are belligerent or acting like jerks. Um, They're getting life from this. They need to be right. and we get it from Christ, and so that allows us to be humble even as we speak the truth, and we do it in a way that is ascribing worth uh, to another. And if at any point speaking the truth, um, uh, you you find that uh, the truth you're speaking is uh, drowning out the love you're supposed to be communicating as you speak the truth, then once again do the kingdom a favor and shut up. Uh, uh, Calm down until you can do it in love. That's...
0: Otherwise, you're sabotaging it. It's always struck me how amazing it is that you can say some pretty, uh, pretty strong claims in terms of content, what you believe, um, and yet if how you say it uh, comes across in terms of a gentleness, if instead of um, you leading with what you think, if you actually ask some questions first and actually hear what they think... Just to sort of, so much is attitude, so much is, mm. is how much respect you show another person. And once, once that sort of attitude of respect is there, so often the defenses come down and people can yes. hear stuff they don't agree with, but it doesn't trigger that sort of, uh, you don't
1: care yeah, about yeah, me yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, 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 if you go into a confrontational situation where you need to speak the truth and the truth is kind of hard to speak and it will be very hard to hear, if, if you are first in an attitude of love, where you're committed to be ascribing worth to the person, okay. um, that, that will give you a wisdom that you otherwise wouldn't have. If you're going into a situation angry, well, if you're angry, your prefrontal lobe cortex is not working very well, and that's what does all the reasoning and gives you all your wisdom. And so it's important to first get in that love zone yeah. and then uh, speak the truth with that attitude.
2: All right. Good question. A cu- couple more. The sermon on the generic God explained to me how so many of my friends can say I believe in God but seem to have no sense of a Jesus-looking God. It's almost like the generic God inoculates people in America from coming Mm. to know the true God revealed through Jesus. How can we help our family and friends who just believe in a generic God to seriously consider the truly Jesus-looking God?
0: Yeah, Excellent question. I think it goes back, I think, to what you have often challenged us with, which is what really is, is the picture of God in our heads, right? I, I think if you, you know, most people on any poll in America on any given year, you can get most, you know, vast majority of people to, to, to poll as, as being Christian. Um, and yet, if you can get inside of, of people's heads, like, for example, describe to me the God that, that you believe in. And you actually start listening to... The descriptions that come out frequently it is a much more generic god than it is a radically jesus-centered god even for myself i remember the time you know i remember it was november 1998 when you and i were at an orlando conference and i was struggling with just feeling the love of god and greg just kind of walked me through a you know paul what do you feel when you hear the word god what do you see and in that little exercise it took us about 20 minutes I my mm-hmm. eyes were open to the fact that the God I frequently saw imagined in my mind when I said dear God to pray or something was not at all a, a beautiful looking God it, was, it looked more like the God of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel with those penetrating eyes that scared the heck out of me and and that, that explained a lot because my prayer life at that point was not very vibrant and uh, and so I think it was back to this question what really what really you know, past the, the right answers and the cliches and the, the... What really are we in our hearts and minds seeing and sensing about God? And does it look anything like the beauty of, 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 of the sacrificial God in Jesus Christ?
1: Well, well one way of, of kind of activating that conversation might be just to comment about how radically unique and weird the revelation of God in Christ is. From, yeah. For example... Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that for the world, the cross is foolishness and weakness, but for us, it is the power of God. And, and mm. so here he defines power by Jesus getting crucified. That God shows off his power by letting himself be crucified rather than crushing his enemies. Um, that is contrary to the, what humans have thought about God's power throughout history. And so by putting that out, you, 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 it will... Possibly conflict with this person's idea of power, because most people, including most Christians, still think of power as the world's power, coercive power, control power, enemy-killing power. And if you hold up self-sacrificial love as God's true power, well, that's kind of weird. And it's a way of then kind of eliciting their picture of God, now you have something to talk about.
2: All right, we got to wrap it up, so we have time for our final one last question. Really quick, we want to remind you all to come on out to the gathering area and participate in the volunteer appreciation celebration time. Also, uh, make sure that you watch all three podcasts, the three services, because different questions were asked each time. So if you want the whole totality of what we discussed and answered here, then watch all of those. Thanks again for being here and submitting your questions. Great questions, too. Here we go. Smart churches. And Greg's. Humble, too. (laughs) Time, time, time. In Greg's sermon about Islam, he spent a lot of time talking about nonviolence toward enemies. How can we reconcile this nonviolence with the fight or flight response that's wired into our brains? During the Heart Smart series, it sounded like those were God-given responses we have to danger.
1: Excellent question. Got one minute here. (laughs) (laughs) You got a one minute end? Okay, well, here's the, the shortest way I'd respond to that. Um, look, at, there is a healthy kind of fear that's natural. Uh, it, it, it's the brain's way of just saying, warning, warning. You know, so if you're you know, a female uh, walking uh, down some rough part of the city uh, at 1 a.m., and all of a sudden you realize you're being followed by five guys who look like they have ill intent, uh, you should be afraid. You also shouldn't have been walking out there when in the morning. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, you might want to right there uh, make a call. Yeah. So that's, a, that's an appropriate thing, to have a caution like fear. That's the right use of fear. But now, if, if, when you get home, I would encourage you to uh, pray a blessing over those five guys. Whatever their intention was, you don't know. Uh, but, so you're not living in that fear. We, we need to have a love that causes... The, when when that appropriate use, the temporary use of fear is done, we need to have a love that then drives that fear out. Uh, otherwise, it's toxic. We, we, we internalize it. It begins to poison us. And so uh, uh, it, it, there are appropriate contexts where you're, it, it, it's natural. It's, it's even godly to be a, a, to have fear. It's a warning. But we don't want to be living in that. And the way to stay clear of that is by... Always committing to love your enemies. Not in the moment, in the moment when you're being attacked or something. That, that, that's where fear would be have a place. But to be having a love for your enemies and blessing them and doing good to them, whatever's good, to, to, whatever would be good for them, you pray that, and that includes the good of, of maybe uh, that they, they get out of their. Uh, demonic beliefs and their demonic activity and and that the people are protected from them that'd be a good thing to pray and that they get convicted and that their eyes get opened to the love of god and they get transformed and all of that you pray that but you're doing it in love as you agree with god that they were dying for it's the most important fact about them and that's the kind of love that drives out fear so they're not living in it it doesn't have a toxic toxic effect on our life man all right oh there we go amen oh would you stand I'd, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And uh, if you are here this morning and have any need uh, that could uh, use prayer, I encourage you to take advantage of it. They would love to serve you by praying for you. Whether, whether that's a relational thing, emotional thing, financial thing, whatever. Uh, come up and receive prayer. And if you're not a follower of Jesus but want to find out about that and uh, what that entails, come up here and talk to these folks and they'd love to uh, explain that to you. I'll send us out with this prayer. Father, as we leave this place, I pray that we are a people who are growing in a love that drives out all fear, uh, that it gives us a peace that passes understanding, that helps us not to cling to the things of this world, um, that frees us to love like you love, like the sun shines, uh, like the rain falls, we love indiscriminately. And uh, let that drive out all fear of our life. As we go out into a world of darkness, let us be light and shine with your character in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Keep on thinking.